What do you do when you're wronged? That's the question of the day on Abounding Grace. Pastor Ed, Pastor, I'm a part of this church, or I'm listening, I'm part of another church, and I've been wronged. I've been hurt. I'm the one that received the short end of the stick. They've gossiped about me. They've slandered me. They've drugged my reputation through the mud. And they did it on purpose. And they say they're believers. What am I supposed to do then? That's a great question to ask. Here's your answer. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Don't seek revenge. This is amazing grace. You don't have to look far to find Christians fighting with other Christians. Whether it's a heated disagreement related to an interpretation of the Bible or a fight springing from an unkind word spoken in anger. While we are to be living in harmony, more often than not, Christians aren't getting along. Do we even stop to wonder what the world thinks as they look on? Or even more important, what God thinks? Pastor Ed Taylor is leading a verse-by-verse study of 1 Peter, and today's topic is what to do when we're wronged. Join us for a very important discussion on abounding grace. Take your Bibles. Would you open them to the book of 1 Peter? We're going to pick up where we left off last time in chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. If you weren't here for the last few weeks, I encourage you to go to our app or our website and listen, especially if you're married, listen to the Bible studies. Uh, really go back to the beginning of the chapter when we looked at the overarching teaching on submission. And then we saw from submission uh, in employment and to government. We also then talked about submission in marriage, uh, both with the wife. There's mutual submission, husband and wife, but the role of the wife. And then we also looked in our last study together on the role of the husband and his command, the command here from Peter to dwell with your wives with understanding and treat them as the precious women that they are. Now we pick up in verse 8. Finally, All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Remember, Pastor Peter is writing to believers that are going through tough times, Families are struggling. Situations are serious. Not everything was going the way that they had anticipated or planned. Really nothing was going the way that they would like. And that was for the first century church, but we could say the same for us in many ways. We make our plans. We look to the future. We have high hopes. And then we live life to find out that sin has corrupted all of our hopes and plans. And things don't happen the way that we thought they would. And tough times come to us as well. And it's more than just inconvenience. Inconvenience is one thing, but deep trials are another. They're not just inconvenience, the first century believers. They're on, their, they're on the run for their own lives. The government, 
led by Nero, was after them, blaming him for things that they didn't do. They were experiencing things that you could describe as wrong and unjust, painful, hard, in some cases could even lead to hopelessness. Daily, they could find themselves in situations where their response is, this is just wrong. This isn't right. What's wrong with this world? What's wrong with Nero? God, why? Why have you allowed this? Now, things might not be that tough for us yet. We certainly aren't experiencing what the first century believers faced, at least the way they did. We have our own trials and difficulties. But there are still situations in your life where you can step back and say, this is just wrong. This isn't right. This isn't the way it should be. Sometimes it's brought upon ourselves. We're suffering the consequences of our own sinful decisions. We're paying, we're, we're reaping what we've sown. And you may be able to look back at your own life and go, you know what? I didn't take that seriously. I didn't take that seriously. I thought I got away with it. And then boom, it visits you at just the wrong time. And there are times when we bring it upon ourselves. I believe it was F.B. Meyer, the famous preacher that once said, and I quote, this is the bitterest of all to know that suffering need not have been, that it's resulted from our own indiscretions and inconsistencies, that it is the harvest of one's own sowing. All me, this is pain. Sometimes it's our own sin. Other times it's the sin of others. People we have no control over. Situations that we couldn't change because we have no ability to change. We can't touch the hearts of people. And people do things and say things and behave certain ways that we become, we become the ones that pay the price for their sin. I think of abuse. I think of prejudice. I think of gossip and slander. I think of thieves breaking in and stealing. Those are all horrific, painful, painful situations. Sometimes it's both. It's a little bit of our own sin. It's a little bit of others. It's the environment that we live in. And Peter writes in chapter 3, really in chapter 2 as well, that our response is to live in submission, to voluntarily fall in line, to live in submission. And we looked at those things in depth. But it's counterintuitive because in difficult times, our response with things that we have no control over, one of our fleshly responses is to try to control and try to and, and respond in such a way where, man, this doesn't, this is happening, this is happening, but I want to control part of it. And often that's a sinful decision, taking things into our own hands. When we were studying through 1 Samuel verse by verse, we learned how many opportunities David had when he was on the run from King Saul. Literally, King Saul chased him to murder him. He was tormenting him, throwing spears at him. And David had opportunity after opportunity to take things into his own hands, and he refused. Why? Because he learned to commit his life to the providence of God. He learned to live trusting God. To know that while he couldn't change the circumstance, or if he could, it wouldn't have been God's will. And we learn that here with Peter. Now, many, many years later, Peter says, look, I know things are hard. I know things are difficult. I know there's stress in your marriage. I know there's stress in your business. I know there's so much pressure and stress in your life right now. 
But he says, finally, be of one mind, he says in verse 8. Next to that phrase, one mind, you could just write the word unity. Unity. How important it is for us to love in unity. Because difficulties disrupt unity. Listen, one of the most worn out weapons of the devil, one of the ones that he's used on every single one of us, that's everyone that's listening to me right now, is to bring disunity into our lives. Disunity in the church, of course, disunity in our relationships, disunity in our families. He'll throw all of his weight into disrupting unity. Why? Well, because Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. This is so important that in the book of uh, Ephesians, when Paul was writing inspired by the Holy Spirit to the church in Ephesus, he actually said, if you're going to be fighting for anything, fight for unity. Fight, he says, endeavoring to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Automatically, the decision that we make to abide in Christ brings us back to the unity that's already there. Unity, disunity comes from us fighting and being in the flesh and being upset with one another, pushing our point. Disunity comes when we don't protect it and guard it. And it's beautiful in verse 8 to see what comes from unity. Notice he says, the first thing in verse 8 is, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. So the first thing that comes, that you can look for when there's unity is compassion. Compassion. The word means sincerely feeling for, or sincerely feeling with. Compassion. That you think of the needs of others above your own. When they hurt, you hurt. When they struggle, you struggle. And compassion flows from a soft heart, not a hard one. And it speaks of sensitivity. Notice number two, he says, love as brothers. So brotherly love is a result of unity. Whenever, wherever there's unity, there's going to be compassion and there's going to be brotherly love. Not only that, but notice you can put these two together, tenderheartedness. Now, I know a lot of guys don't like to be described as tenderhearted, uh, especially guys. Like, you know, you want to be strong, put up a strong front. But part of unity is a tenderness about you, a tenderness from the Lord. You see, God, he sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to take on a human body. And one of the things, one of the ways Jesus was described as tenderhearted, gentle, meek, and mild. Not, not that he was weak in any way or that he was someone without power, but rather he knew how to care for others. You could say that Jesus had this power under control, brotherly love and tenderness. There's a sweetness in unity when we love one another. With tender hearts, we can then sense the leading of God's spirit to look out for others with an openness to meet others' needs. And also, he says in verse 8, be courteous. I like that. Be courteous. This is humility. As we put others ahead of ourselves, when I'm, courte when I'm courteous, I'm nice to you. I'm kind. I, I think of you before I think of myself. I think of how I can care for you. I, I put my own needs second to yours. Notice this comes from unity. This is led by the Holy Spirit. This is something that God can put into us. And it reminds us that as a church, we're a family. We're a family here. A family of believers drawn together, knit together by Jesus' great and compassionate love for us. One thing that we all share in common is that we were great sinners met by great grace. 
Every single one of us. When we begin to forget where we came from, or perhaps you were raised in a godly home, right? And you don't have this massive sinful testimony. So you don't, you, when I say you remember where you came from, you kind of think back and go, well, I, I just remember following Jesus since I was in diapers. I remember my family doing devotion. Well, then what you need to remember is not simply where you came from, but what God held you back from. Like, you didn't have to live some nasty life like I did. You didn't have to pay all the price that I did for my own sin, all the hurt that I caused, that God prevented you. But for most of us, unfortunately, we have to remember where we came from, what God delivered us out of, the pit and the muck and the mire and the bondage to sin, the things that we were doing, the things that we were into, the decisions that we made. We've all been saved from sin. We've saved, uh, saved out of sin or saved from sin or a deep life of sin. And, and this is the family that God adopted us into. And the bonds here in the church can be greater than your own blood relations. That's a startling thing. I know that some of you, your relationships in the church are deeper than your relationships with your own blood family. And it's just a very difficult place to be. It's very hard. Because the relationships can get so deep in the body of Christ, because there's such a trust among us, because there's such an intimacy and our guards go down as our relationships grow, that's why, you might want to mark this in your mind or in your notes, why it hurts so much when you're betrayed by a believer. When you're hurt in the church, you could say. When you, something happens to you and you just didn't expect it. Not in the church, you might say. Oh, I know I got that at work and I got that in my family, but I never thought it would happen in the church. I'm sorry, it happens in the church all the time. And the startling thing is, is that not only can you be hurt in the church, you also can hurt someone else. It's not just to you, it can come from you. That's, that's family. That's why I like to say, you know, when we use the word family, when God talks about us being a family is a good illustration because I like to say, we all have family. Uh, you have a family, I have a family. We all have that brother. We all have that cousin. We all, like family's family. Like it's, it, you, there's even a lot of discussion about the dysfunctional family. You know, truth be told in the light of Christ, we all grew up in a dysfunctional family. Dysfunction just comes from sin. Now, let me, let me be careful. I don't want to minimize some of the pain that you personally experienced in your dysfunctional family. I know some are worse than others. But none of us grew up in a perfect family. And none of us are leading a perfect family. <laughs> we all have difficulties. That's why it hurts. So we have high expectations with the body of Christ. Many of those expectations are not unusual or unreasonable. We have high expectations. But we have to remember when disunity comes, then with the opposite of compassion, the opposite of brotherly love, the opposite of tenderness, the opposite of courtesy starts to, to happen among us. And it doesn't just happen. It doesn't need to happen all of us, you could just be hitting the wrong person at the wrong time. And you're like, man, and it was the wrong time. You were the wrong person in the wrong time to have to deal with that. And the enemy just loves to sow seeds of discord. That's why the Bible says in the Proverbs that God, he hates. Let me show you. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 6 with me. This is so, so vital to understand the heart of God. Go back to Proverbs with me, would you? Proverbs chapter 6. I want you to pick up in verse 16. By the way, if you're looking for a way to read the Bible regularly every day, looking for a devo, you know, a way to start, read a proverb a day. Uh, this month happens to have 31 days, so you can read a chapter of the Proverbs every day. And God will just begin to infuse wisdom in your heart. 
And if you have a little extra time, not only read a chapter of Proverbs a day, because there's 31 chapters in Proverbs and mostly 31 or 30 days in a month. So you could read a chapter a day and on some days just double up. But if you have a little extra time, you can read some of the Psalms and you can go as long as you want. Some Psalms are shorter or longer. But when you read the Proverbs, God is depositing wisdom in you. When you read the Psalms, which are right next to the Proverbs, God is depositing worship inside of you because it's the Psalm book of the Bible. And then if you have a little extra time and you're just beginning in the Bible, don't know where to start, start reading the Gospel of John. Because what that God will deposit in you is a love for Jesus. <laughs> and that's what you want anyway. You want to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your strength. So, so listen to the wisdom that's given to Solomon here. Pick up in verse 16, Proverbs chapter 6. I want you to mark this, and I want you to see very carefully the change and transition that takes place here. These six things the Lord hates... Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Number one, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises, devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil. Now, notice up to this point, it's a look, a tongue, hands, heart, feet, and then things change with number six. Now it's a person. I know this is hard to receive, but this is what the Bible says. Sometimes you have to step back and just let the Bible say what it says. And so you go back and match. The Lord hates a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord. Notice where? Among the brethren. And I believe that includes here in the church. God hates those who sow discord in the church. If you sat on my side of the desk or any of the pastors and leaders here that have to deal with the fallout of disunity, you would agree with me. If you've been on the other end of the pain of disunity, you would agree with me because we agree with the Bible. It's a horrible thing for those that purposely want to destroy you and destroy the church, this local body, that church by lying and sowing little seeds and it's not outright most of the time. It's just little seeds, little questions, little doubts that if you're not careful, you'll run with. It might come in a weak moment for you. And the Bible says he doesn't just hate that. He hates them. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be, I don't want my life to be on the other end of the hatred of God. Now, I understand the new covenant, and I know save you guys from emailing me and go, eh, that's the old covenant, that's the old covenant. Yeah, the God of the old covenant is the same God of the new covenant. He doesn't approve of disunity today, I can tell you that. He doesn't approve of those sowing seeds of discord. He doesn't approve of a little post on Facebook and the little notes over here and the little innuendos and prayers. He doesn't approve any of that. That's not true. It's not from the Lord. He hates those that sow seeds of discord. And, you know, even half-truths are full lies. <laughs> You've got to be really careful walking in the Spirit, right? How, how do we protect ourselves from that? Well, back into Peter, even in the midst of great trial, unity. Unity. Unity comes from the Spirit. We're a family here. Even though you might say today, listening to me, but Ed, Pastor Ed, Pastor, I'm a part of this church, or I'm listening, I'm part of another church, and I've been wronged. I've been hurt. I'm the one that received the short end of the stick. They've gossiped about me. They've slandered me. They've drugged my reputation through the mud. And they did it on purpose. And they say they're believers. What am I supposed to do then? That's a great question to ask. Look at verse 9. Here's your answer. 
not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Number one, don't seek revenge. Imagine how different the church would be if we simply treated other Christians as 1 Peter 3 instructs us to. Through all of our spots and wrinkles, we're to love one another and get along. And when we're wronged, we're not to seek revenge. Pastor Ed, we learned today what we're not to do when we're wronged, and that is namely seek revenge. But what should we do? Are there some positive actions we can take instead when someone hurts us? Yeah, you know, this is a challenging multi-layered question, isn't it, Larry? Because there's different kinds of hurts from different types of people, uh, so we can't really address every scenario that could be happening here, because if, if we try to do that, we don't have enough time. So even as I give simple answers, I don't want you—please listen, guys—I don't want you to minimize or dismiss it because you're like, well, my situation's much harder than that, or he doesn't understand. And, and let's just clear the plate right now. I don't understand your pain. I'm not living the hard life you're living. I haven't been hurt like you've been hurt, but I'm asking you to trust me. I have been and are continually being hurt deeply every single day. And I can tell you that my response must be to trust in the Lord with all of my heart and lean not on my own understanding, acknowledge God in all my ways, and He'll direct my paths He'll come alongside of me. He'll help me. Sometimes we equate everything going well as absence of pain, but everything could be going well, and others can be sinning against you. You could be experiencing the consequences of past decisions or present decisions, but we don't want to take things into our own hands, right? We don't want to jump in and go, I'll fix this. Rarely, if ever, is that how things get fixed. But rather, if you apply Matthew chapter 18 and you attempt to reconcile and you pray and you attempt to make things right, even if they still resist, and you know how sometimes it gets, they blame you for everything and, you know, maybe, maybe they're, okay, I'll apologize. If I ever did maybe something, I'm so sorry that you're hurting, you shouldn't really be hurting and okay, well, okay, maybe I'm, I might be sorry. And you're like, what? What can I do with that? That's not repentance. You don't really believe you did anything. Um, so therefore, the relationship's still strained or even broken for that matter. So it's in times like that, you want to make sure your relationship with the Lord is strong. You want to be in the Word and prayer daily. You, you want to grow. I think a great resource is A Tale of Three Kings. Uh, another great resource is The Bait, B-A-I-T, of Satan. How you deal with difficulties with other people in the body of Christ. Because that makes it worse, right? It's, it's bad enough to be jacked by somebody in the world, but to be jacked by another Christian or somebody you trusted, somebody who was close to you, you know, betrayal is some of the worst kind of pain and hurt to experience. But the Lord is with you, and I know it's hard, and I know it hurts, but we got to keep living life, seeking the Lord, loving people that allow us to love them, serve them, and proclaim Jesus to them. So st- stick with it. Don't quit. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on, don't lean on your own understanding, but trust Him. Walk with Him. He will comfort you and encourage you. Very good. Thanks again, Ed. You can hear these radio programs on our website anytime at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Another way to go and grow in the Word is by downloading our app. Search for Ed Taylor. This is a great way for you to take in the Word of God wherever you may be. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, too. 
Is there an afterlife? What is heaven like? How will we spend our time there? And what does it mean to see God face to face? Questions like these enter our minds as we contemplate what's next after we die. In The Case for Heaven, Lee Strobel investigates the evidence for life after death. You'll read fascinating conversations with respected scholars and experts, including a neuroscientist from Cambridge University who has analyzed a thousand accounts of near-death experiences. You'll receive compelling reasons for why death isn't the end of our existence, but a transition to an exciting world to come. Request a copy of The Case for Heaven today when you give a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. Call 877-30-GRACE or go online to calvaryco.store. And as the costs of being on the radio are growing, we're looking to the Lord to provide for us. If He's leading you to take an active role in the ministry through either a one-time gift or ongoing support, please visit us online at AboundingGraceRadio.com or call 877-30-GRACE. Well, that'll do it for today. Come back tomorrow when Pastor Ed Taylor will pick up where we left off in 1 Peter here on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace This is unfailing Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.